No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain is also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso? sitting here with David Weatherly, um, author of Black-Eyed Kids and about 50 other things. <laughs> Maybe you can list them for me, or uh, some of them. Well, see, Black-Eyed Children, of course, that every, a lot of people know. Wood Knocks, mm -hmm. Volume 1 and now 2. That's a subtitled Journal of Sasquatch Research, and as it implies, is about the world's most famous cryptid. Uh, Strange Intruders, which is about, about a variety of humanoid encounters. Haunted Toys, which just came out a couple of weeks ago. We've got a DVD series coming out this year. A whole lot of other projects in the works, too. You, you, you don't rest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm passionate about what I do. So. Yeah. Um, I met David for the first time last year at the UFO, International UFO Conference. Who introduced us? How the hell? Was that, was that Chris, maybe? It might have been. Chris O'Brien, yeah. I think maybe. Yeah. yeah. I think he'll be here tomorrow. Um and I found out that we had a lot of the same ideas on things, even though we're coming from kind of different um, fields, I guess. I don't know. I'm not in any field. I just like looking at weird stuff, and just most of it happens to be UFOs, I guess. Uh -huh. 
And for um, David, most of it happens to be all kinds of other stuff. But um, you oh, said UFOs too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said you're working on a. Do you want to talk about the tulpas thing? We can talk about tulpas. Yeah, that's fine. That's a good entry. Sure. Um, you said you're working on it. <laughs> it. This is totally informal. We can say whatever we no want. Worries. It's not a. It's not any formal anything. Anyway, <clears throat> it's just it's formal in as much as people are going to listen. Um, so what you have a you you said you'd written a tulpas book and it's this big fat horse choker but you don't know what to, you don't know what to, it, it kind of is I when mean, you want to release it yeah it's, it's not completed uh, I was I did a lecture tour a few years ago and was doing an actual lecture about tul- tulpas and thought forms and mm-hmm. the lecture was titled tulpas thought forms and the web of life and. The idea was that a lot of that material would roll over into a book because I already had an outline for a book on tulpas. And the lecture proved to be very, very popular. In fact, I, so much so that I <clears throat> did DVDs of the lecture itself yeah. uh, because I had so many people asking for it. Ah. But what happened in the, in the midst of all of that was that I ended up with so much material you know, on this tulpa topic yeah. The, the irony being, you mentioned Chris O'Brien, and you know I had talked to him at one point because he heard the lecture and he said, "I, I love that, you know, make a good book, but I, I don't know if you could find enough material." And, <laughs> and now I just really laugh about that because I'm, you know, I, he must have cursed me because <laughs> you know I, I've got this uh, massive amount of material on the topic. So at some point, I really need to sort of chisel that down, and I get asked about it all the time. Yeah. Uh, ever since the the lecture series, but you know how the creative muse takes over sometime, and and what happened was yeah, that other projects came in that really you know uh, took away all my time, and and the result was that the top of the book has been kind of on the back shelf for a little while. Mm-hmm. It, eventually, it'll get out. So. So it's not it's not a completed. You actually have to chip away at it. I do have to chip away at it, yeah, because there's there's just too much material there at the moment, and it really needs to be sort of centralized down. But it's such a fascinating topic. Yeah, you can go in so many different directions, as you and I were discovering earlier today when we right. were talking about it. Well, such as okay, we can take the Slender Man thing for thing that thing that most people know <clears throat> about, in as much as. Uh, it was an internet meme, and then suddenly it became. It went into the news because a couple of girls said that the Slender Man told them to do uh, to kill their friend or whatever they did to their friend. Right, and that was that was one of those creepy things. Where and then people ended up seeing it too. It, it was, uh, you know, it's one of these things where the supernatural started intersecting with our physical reality to, you know, with a real punctuation point for me because I was doing those lectures and spoke about the Slender Man towards the end of the lecture because I wanted to emphasize to people, and and this is before the criminal case that you're talking about, yeah. uh, I wanted to emphasize to people that we're now in a place in the world where the collective consciousness can manifest in, in a way that is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. And what I believe was happening with the Slender Man, uh, and I know you know the story, but for listeners who don't know, and the Slender Man was created during a contest on a forum called Something Awful. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to create a phony image that was paranormal-related and make it go viral on the Internet. Mm-hmm. 
So the the forum still exists. It's incredibly long, but if you look at it, the early I didn't know that. I thought it was in that creepy paste uh, thing. No, it was not in creepy paste. It was it was in a forum, and if you look at the early parts of the forum, you'll find a few things. One. A lot of people came up with ideas that were, you know, photoshopped cryptids and UFOs and all this different stuff. And nothing that really the, tapped into that collective no. horror. Right. Well, and then along comes this guy uh, whose username was Victor Surge. And he started, it was really masterful in a sense because he was very subtle. It was not extremely obvious. You know, he came up with these pictures that one is of a playground, and just way in the background, you see this little figure. It's this tall, thin figure with no face and these extra tendrils. And it grew from there. And in fact, the initial postings, this character wasn't even named. Mm. And eventually, uh, he became the Slender Man, two words, which sort of morphed into Slender Man, a singular word. But what Surge actually did there there was an interview done with this guy at some point and he said that he was simply thinking of the boogeyman under the bed huh. that type of a thing yeah you know something that was sort of lurking and yeah and maybe was there but you know but was very sort of undefined but was scary and what happened was really the creation of a modern mythology because other people quickly jumped into this uh, into the mix and started adding components. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone came up with a series of woodblocks they claim were from the 15th century that depicted Slenderman. Yeah. And then someone else threw in something from the 1940s. So we get all these bits and pieces. And what happens is, uh, as I said, a modern mythology builds around this character. Right. And in the midst of that, what happened was that people started calling some of the paranormal talk shows. Uh, Coast to Coast AM, in fact, got some calls one night with people panicking that they had seen this weird figure that they described as the Slender Man. And if you go back and and really look at things, there are some curious correlations. There's a figure in uh, some Germanic folktales, the Schwarz Man, the Dark Man, that is is very much like the Slender Man. So, you know, we see some connections with bits and pieces of folklore around the world. Uh, But eventually this came to the point where this did go viral, and you've got people who are now connecting with this idea that don't know the whole story. Mm -hmm. So all they're hearing is, oh, my God, there's some kind of creepy, you know, seven-foot-tall guy with extra tendrils and no face, and, and, you know, he's real. When you say extra tendrils, what do you mean? Well, if you see some of the early pictures... They look like he's just very long legs and arms. Right. Well, some of the depictions show extra arms, almost... Oh, It's almost like an octopus depiction. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, And, you know, what happened was all of these people were contributing to it indirectly. Yeah. And, of course... You know what I'm going to ask next. Now we're we're (laughs) in this situation where our modern technology makes an idea go completely around the globe in a matter of seconds. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are posting online, they're posting social media. Yeah. And what I think was happening was the collective consciousness adding energy to the manifestation of this thing to possibly create a modern tulpa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, and we did talk about, was the conjuring up Philip. 
Right. And the parallels to that. And if people don't know what the Philip thing was, in the 1970s, right, Mm -hmm. in Canada, a group of psychic investigators got together. They decided, they went through a few different experiments, but then they decided that they wanted to um, see if they could create a manifested spirit. Yeah, they wanted to create a ghost in, in, you know. Oh, that's uh, right. First they wanted to create one that they could see. That's correct. And they were, you know, it was a a parapsychology group that, bear in mind, this is 1970, so the methods of, quote, investigating and communication were things like table tapping, uh, you know, Ouija boards, uh, Mm -hmm. these types of of, uh, things. We didn't, didn't have all the electronic gadgets that are so common today, so... What these people did was they created a backstory for a character named Philip Aylesford. And they made it sort of a tragic story. Mm-hmm. They put holes in the story historically, uh, you know, historical components that weren't correct. Right. And they did that intentionally because they wanted to um, make some fail safes as far as they were concerned hmm. to see if. Uh, to ensure that it wasn't some other spirit, right? Okay. You know that they were pulling forth, right? That they were you know, so connecting with. So they wanted to actually create and manifest this spirit. And the initial stages of the experiment are, are pretty fascinating because at first nothing's happening. Then they get little things, and and then. Philip I think they gave up at one point. They and did then give they, up. And, yeah. and, and then they decided to, like, relax, and that seemed to win, and it, it created a rapport within the group. Right. And then Philip starts to communicate. Yeah. Now, one of the things that fascinates me the most about this experiment, and there are some dramatic things. There's yeah. there's footage of uh, a table levitating, for instance. Yeah, they did it in a TV the, studio. Right, during one of the experiments. One of the things I found very fascinating about this was that Philip, the, quote, spirit, Begin to give information that about individuals that no one could know. Mm-hmm. So somehow he's tapping into their, you know, consciousness and pulling forth this stuff and, and putting it out and you know publicly for that little group to to hear. And were these correct? I can't remember. I haven't got that from. Yeah. They were. And what do you mean? Pieces of information about people they didn't know. Uh, no, well. For instance, you know, personal information that they hadn't shared with any group members. I see. Um, you know, and suddenly the spirit is saying, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, in the context of what they were doing, that makes total sense. Right, though. right. But it's kind of mind-boggling at the same time, too, yeah. because, you know, how do you, you know, where does that come from exactly? Right. Um, well, I don't know. It came from it came from that group mind, and it's part of the exactly. that, whatever that brain is, or whatever model you want to use for all exactly. those people creating that thing. Um, at, at the beginning, they said they were getting raps on the table, and they said nobody nobody could knock on the table or anything like that, but they could feel whoever asked the question would get the knock underneath the table. That's right. Underneath their underneath fingers. Underneath their fingers, yeah. And they could feel it like somebody very strong. They could feel the pressure they they said from That's the correct. from the knock. Yeah, and this you know this in and itself is something that, as I say, sort of sends us down the rabbit hole because <laughs> we had to question: Okay, did they create or co-create a spirit into manifestation that somehow 
you know, begin to display these physical uh, connections? Or, you know, was it simply the group mind that was communicating with each other? You know, did they not even, was there not even really a physical knock? It's just that they, you know, they were responding to the what would have been appropriate. Or then again, you know, it could have been some spirit that was there and took the opportunity to connect into this yeah. idea of Philip. To me, that's and, the most just, boring part, idea. Uh, percept, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, um, possibility. Yeah, possibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yes just no, too simple, you know. It, it, well, yes and no, because, you know, it's at the same time, it is something that you have to be conscious of because people, when it comes to ghosts, they seem to fall into a couple of different categories. They either think that you know they're all virtually caspers you know just waiting to you know to talk to someone mm-hmm. or you get people who think that anything of that type of manifestation has got to be demonic you know there's got to be something sinister and evil about it but there's i think there's a lot of in between ground that maybe that could fall into yeah well it, it you know getting back to the slender man it sounds like a global philip I, yeah, in a sense. And, you know, ironically, I was doing this lecture series and sort of warning people and saying... Oh, yeah, you mentioned this. You know, we're... This is a serious situation because now we've got a group mind, you know, a global consciousness that's focusing on, focusing on something negative. Mm-hmm. And people may be co-creating this into existence. And... Uh, of course, we begin to see a lot of reports of people encountering the Slender Man. And then we had this tragic case in Wisconsin that happened not long after I gave uh, the last Tulpa lecture. And it, it, was, it was a very disturbing case. In fact, they just did a documentary on this yeah. on HBO. And I didn't see it. Did you see it? I, I did see yeah. it. I did see it. How, was it uh, fair? It, it, it's very unsettling. Mm. And it's... a. Uh, curious glimpse into it, it emphasize it, it really focuses more on the tragedy and what these two girls sort of experienced and in fact there's even footage of them you know they were 12 years old when they committed this crime and the courts ruled that they would be charged as adults hmm. so they've since turned 13 I guess they're probably almost 14 now because I think that's how long it's been so uh they're waiting trial, the last I heard, which I believe is sometime this spring, and potentially could receive life sentences or whatever. And it's you see the psychological component for sure. And you know, I'll leave it for people to. I won't spoil anything. You know, watch it if you're interested in this stuff. But the long and short of the case is that these two 12-year-old girls lured a friend who was also 12. Uh, to a party, uh, just the three of them, and they took her out to the woods and tried to kill her. And they stabbed her, gosh, I, it's something, it's like 32 times or something, something you know, just unreal. And she survived. Mm-hmm. But the whole reason they did it was because they had become obsessed with this idea of Slenderman. And they had all of these components that have become popular in the last several years with the Slender Man from various games and the video series and all this. And there's this 
mythology that's built up that he lives in this bizarre mansion in the woods, yeah. and that he you know he'll take certain people that are his uh, acolytes or disciples or whatever, and then they can go and live in the mansion with him. So these, you know, two normal middle-class girls suddenly decided that that's what they, you know, that to do that they needed to sacrifice a friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, this... They just this came up with this, they, or was this based well, on what they read out of the literature? Well, this is from Internet uh, yeah. That's what I meant by the literature. Yeah, that's exactly what it's from. So, you know, they, over time, developed this idea. It's not really clear how long they focused on this, so to speak. We know Slenderman has been around for quite a few years now. Yeah. Uh, I think the... I'm not positive. I want to say it was around 2009, I believe, was the first... okay. Real manifestations of, of the whole internet thing. It's like a postmodern bad seed. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, we've got. It's funny, too, because people ask me all the time when we talk about Slenderman, what's the difference between, say, Slenderman and, and you know, Freddy Krueger or Friday the 13th Jason and things like that? Right. And the difference is, is that. This has been very subtly, in a way, placed into people's consciousness. And at least a portion of the people involved in manifesting this are not aware that it's something that's been created. Hmm. So, you know, people go to see a horror movie, they know, okay, this is, right. this is a horror movie. Somebody that's the made, context. Somebody made it up, you know, and I you know, I can watch it for two hours and then yeah. walk away and not worry about it. Yeah. Uh, but now, you know, you've got this situation again. The collective consciousness is being affected by this idea that, oh, hey, there's this tall, creepy guy with no face mm-hmm. that, you know, makes people disappear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and suddenly all the shadows take on a different context. Yeah. That cannot be the only example of something like that in the last 10 years. Or is it just the most famous? Or I'd say it's the most famous, and it's, and it's certainly the most... You know, dominant, but again, it's the negative too. Uh, you know, people, especially with the conditions we have in the world right now, I think a lot of people sort of default to the negative and mm-hmm. look at these things, and it's it's easier to believe the yeah. negative. Uh, oh. So, you know, there are, there are other interesting things that happen too. I mean, there was, you know, the case I was telling you about from a few years ago, where a, a whole village in Russia, I believe, they saw Superman. Yeah. <laughs> flying over the village. And, uh, it, you know, these things crop up all the time, too. They're more positive manifestations. Unfortunately, they don't seem to have as much of a dominant energy that carries through. It seems to be more one-offs. Hmm. But it, it's still fascinating nonetheless. And, you know, that's, that's a famous one, of course. And this will sound crazy to a lot of people, but, you know, consistently through history, uh, there are a lot of occasions where people are absolutely adamant that they saw Santa Claus. Right. And that gets into a curious idea, too, because if you look at, here we have one day in the year when thousands and thousands of people believe this guy is going to come and bring gifts, you know, and and most adults rationalize it and say, uh, well, you know, I, I give wrapping for my kids just like, you know, my parents did for me and things like that. So we've sort of I think 
cut off the potential, in a sense, for a full topa manifestation with something mm, like that. Yeah, yeah. Because but, it's got its own built-in uh, uh, denial mechanism or that's whatever. That's right. That's right. And Plus, like you, like you said, it's positive. It is, yeah. What is it with the negative that gives things so much life? Uh, <laughs> well, you what know, do you I, think? I think that I think there are a lot of aspects of that. I think one thing is... I mean, it goes uh, way no, beyond a, just Internet stuff or whatever. It gets into basic human psychology. It, it does, but... Uh, you know, primal fear strikes a very different chord with people, and mm. you know we could sort of go back to the whole uh, primal sense of there's something out there in the dark in right. the woods, you know, that we need to be afraid of. That's instilled from somewhere, you know, in our DNA, and I think that these are these types of things like Sunderman are in a roundabout way of manifestation of that. And this this idea of the boogeyman, if you think about it, you know, it's, it's a good example to sort of compare the boogeyman to Santa Claus because we have Santa Claus on the one hand, which we get built-in mechanisms to deny. You, you know, it, it, it makes logical sense for us because we grow up and we catch mom and dad putting the presents out or... You know, something happens, right? We find them hidden in the closet or something like that. And then we grow a little bit older and then we learn, okay, well, there's no Santa Claus. It's just mom and dad. Right. But what about the boogeyman? You know, people who are afraid of the monster under the bed when they're kids, I've talked to a lot of people that that was never really reconciled for them. (laughs) Because you think about it, because, you know, the the parents want to say, no, it's a bad dream. You know, don't worry about it. There's nothing there. But that doesn't. That doesn't comfort a kid who swears that he heard scratching or something moving in the closet. Yeah. You know, and those fears stay there until the person conquers them or or represses them, right? right? So, you know, now we have modern things that are sort of tapping into those suppressed fears. And, right. And I think Slenderman is a good example of that. Right. You know, this guy, he created this... <laughs> on this forum and in a sense he sort of said by the way the boogeyman never really went away (laughs) he's still out there and and really if you look at some of the slender man mythology some of the stories revolve around the idea that this character has always been there he's been watching you Mm -hmm. and waiting until it was until he decided it was time yeah that's freaking creepy that's that sounds like the exact polar opposite of Santa Claus, who does sure. the same thing for a positive. Exactly, exactly. So you know, we get granted, <laughs> we get granted logical denial for Santa Claus, but not, <laughs> not for the boogeyman. Yeah, the the thing I was thinking when you were saying all this is another aspect that that is a fight or flight is a lot more. That's something you have to react to a lot more than everything's cool and nice things are going to happen. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's a, that, it, a, something like a, a fear like that, a fight or flight response demands a reaction. A reaction. Or action or something. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, Santa Claus is going to come in, okay, I'll just sit here and wait. That'll be great. Right. You know, right. or Here's if everything's my li- going wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> if everything's going wonderful, you don't have to get up and do anything. Right. But if something's coming that's threatening your existence, you gotta get up and do something. So maybe that might be part of the that's right. compelling part of that mythos. Well, and I think again, this idea of the unknown, that there's something out there 
Right, right. You know, whether it's something in in the dark woods or plus, you know, when sound is coming, something in the closet. Right. It's, it's very <laughs> defined. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very defined thing. But you know, here we're being told that there's this other, you know, nasty figure that could show up at any time. Yeah. Hmm. So it. it, it do you think that, you know, I know you do, but I was going to say, we can move this into other areas of the paranormal, cryptids, Bigfoot, UFOs, any of these things where people see something that's not supposed to be there, and yet apparently it's there for them. Right. And, you know, there's this, you know, this philosophical thing or whatever that I'm struggling with, is the thing actually there? Is it created by that person? Um, created by that person into physicality immediately on the spot? There's so many ways this could go, and there's a lot of evidence to me for almost any of these. But it tends to bother people that are into this because they want to make they want to say that these things are real. And you know, I'm sure you think that Bigfoot is a paranormal thing, not a physical thing, right? I, I think in general. That, in, in general, I mean, I, I think that Sasquatch are, are physical animals with paranormal attributes. Ah. Okay. I'm more of the purely paranormal, but I don't. Right. I haven't looked at it as much as you. Right. This is the same thing I said to Peter Robbins when I said, "Well, why do you think there's aliens coming to take people and sperm and ova and, and hybrids and all this?" And I said, "I don't think that at all. I think that's. I think this is being imposed upon people." And then, you know, through the course of the interview, I got to the point where I said, "You know what, Peter? I did not live through what you lived through. If I did, my opinion might be different." Right. Because I have had all this confirming evidence. Well, then again, I'm self-selecting the evidence by being interested in it, I suppose. But, you know, I'm curious why you think that it is a physical animal with paranormal attributes, abilities, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I, that sort of, goes, this sort of goes on a whole different track. You know, just to answer your question about tulpas briefly, I mean... We could, and, and in fact, people have argued in the past that, okay, anything that is paranormal, supernatural, and whatever term you want to use is probably a tulpa, you know, created or co-created uh, through our consciousness. And, you know, to me, that's too simple. Hmm. It, it really is. Now, I, I won't deny for a moment the untapped power of the human mind and the human body, you know, we're, we're still learning. I mean, shamanic cultures have talked about human energy field and all these different things you know, for uh, thousands of years. One second before you go ahead. When I say co-created, in my context, it means whatever that thing is that's there, the, the external, what's the word, um, uh, the thing that initiates the, the stimulus, I think that there is a something going on between the observer and the observed that creates whatever we think that observed is. But that sounds like you're talking about something different because you're talking about an external consciousness that is responding to right the to the you know right the and we're re we're reacting to it and I'm thinking that like ninety percent of it or more is us going it's this thing. And it's right. trying to give us feedback, but we don't speak the same language. We speak only the language that's in our heads and is in our DNA and is in our genetic heritage and is in our you know species memory and all that. And that's created. That, to me, is co-creation. And not, not in the Philip way where there's a bunch of people creating something together. 
So when I say co-creation, I mean between an external, the thing that's external to the witness and the witness. So maybe there is an alien consciousness that is responding to the witness's perception of what aliens are. Is that what you're saying? Or we're responding to it in a way that makes sense to us, and it's going, no, 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 that's not what I mean. You're, You're finally going, yep, that's it. You know, well, there's, that, there's, it doesn't really have much say in it. And that sort me. of gets into the collective consciousness again, too, especially mm. if you want to look at aliens in particular, because, you know, one of the things that fascinates me are, and again, this was, <laughs> I was doing a lecture series for a while called Beyond the Grays. And it, really because the, for lack of a better word, the alien contact cases yeah. that fascinate me the most don't have anything to do with these little gray buggers. No. You know, it's all these other aliens. And in (laughs) it's amazing to me how many people have forgotten a lot of these cases. There's a slide in my lecture about that. And look at these fifty different things. Right. And and you what are they doing here? The the ones that I you know, just some of the examples in that lecture that I would talk about would be uh, the Kelly Hopkinsville right. goblins. Uh-huh. I, that's an incredible case. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Flatwoods monster. Right. The, the Zanfretta cases, which I, I'm continually fascinated by. Is that the one with Italian the... Italian case. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, this is amazing. This guy saw 12-foot-tall reptilian aliens with undulating skin. Yeah. And that case, it has all this physical evidence. And, in fact, the, the Italian military police investigated it. And they finally rubber stamped the file, no crime committed, because they couldn't they couldn't come up with any way to explain the things they were finding. It was just what too did they find? I mean, you, you got to remind. All I remember is what they looked like, which were like these bulky, less they kind of looked like horny toads. They, they kind of did, you know, like bipedal horny toads. Yeah, it was really bizarre with these triangular, glowing yellow eyes. Yeah. Uh, they found there was a lot of physical evidence found. First of all, the the first encounter, which happened at a uh, Zanfredo was a security guard, right? And he was charged with checking on certain houses that were vacant at the time. Uh, so he was checking out the residence of a, a, a doctor who was away. And this community uh, that he drove up into it was, it was winter. It was snowing. He saw lights over the house and at first as I recall they believed that lights were behind the house so he thought burglars were trying to get into this house essentially mm-hmm. so he got out of his car you know he radioed back to headquarters got out of his car and figured he'd get the drop on these things well uh, he was the one that, that got received the shot because he encountered these bizarre aliens and when the backup patrol arrived, they found uh, Zanfredo, who initially jumped up and was shouting and tried to attack them, and uh, he, he was in a strange condition. But the authorities came and investigated this case because, one, a large percentage of people who lived in this community saw the lights in the sky over this house, and it was unexplained. This is the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then they found... The 1970s these, was a very weird it decade. Was, it was a great decade for this stuff, I'm yeah. telling you. So then they found these deep impressions in the yard behind in the, the doctor's house uh, that they couldn't explain. They said that you know something of tremendous weight it looked like had set down and then was just gone. Mm. And then later on, there were things that they found um, 
you know, they found this massive shoe print that just, you know, was far beyond human size. They found... Uh, just one? There, yeah, there was a situation where, the, where Zanfredo was in the sleet and his car, he, he radioed in that uh, they had taken control of his vehicle. And when the authorities arrived, they found... I hope I'm remembering the details right. They found that he was outside in the rain, but he was completely dry, and the car was was hot, and it was <laughs> it was freezing cold. You know, so all these bizarre things that just happened. With yeah. And these were repeated encounters that he had with these aliens. And in fact, I did not know it was repeated. Uh, there was yeah, there were several. He was a repeater. He, he was, and. No, people used to make fun of repeaters until we finally realized that a lot of people, witnesses, are repeaters. Right. Uh, now, Zanfredo was, he, he didn't, he got a lot of publicity, and it was really negative. They were making fun of him. He, he didn't want the publicity. He, did, he didn't make any money out of the case. He didn't want anything to do with any of this. And what happened was the, the media just sort of made a big circus out of it. He tried to get it to settle down so he he did an interview which just made it worse and then he resorted to the idea of doing another interview live on television while dosed with sodium pentothal and he told the exact same story yeah and you know he had a there was a a medical authority on saying there's there's no way this man is lying yeah. This is what he experienced. Right. So, you know, again, I mean, we got on this whole sidetrack, but right, the, right. the point is, is that if you look from the, really from like the 1970s, that golden period, you know, for these things, and back, you get some of the most incredible cases that have multiple witnesses, uh, physical evidence, and, and just are, are really sort of mind-bending, you know, the Kentucky Hop, uh, Hopkinsville Right, uh, goblins. Uh, right, Cisco Kelly, Grove, Kelly. the guy with the right, with the robot with the gas coming out of it, yeah. and the other things. Uh, the like, Flatwoods monsters. So, yeah, yeah. There's a whole. Uh, we can go on and on with right. these things, but just what the happens, variety. Right, but what happens in the 1980s? Bang. Right. Just one thing. Yeah. Generally. Yeah. Especially Generally. in West, in the West, and and especially after communion. Communion. Yeah. You know this iconic cover on this book right that comes out it's just the head of this gray alien right and it, it locked into everybody's consciousness why do you think so many people said that's what i saw because they were waiting for them to, to, to because that's what they saw or because their mind was waiting to latch onto something that seemed to make sense to them well those types of entities did you know they were talked about before, right? Uh, I think I think the first mention of them is in what is it in First Man in the Moon, in a fictional uh, oh. uh, account that talks about these. It, it sounds like they're describing the gay, uh, the Greys. Mm-hmm. You know the, the large, oversized heads and uh, right. I think there are precedents by. for it in like 1930s science fiction and stuff too. Right, at least that's a what we're talking time. about. The First oh, okay. Man in the Moon was okay, okay. a science fiction novel, right? So, you know, sporadically you find these cases involving the Greys mm-hmm. throughout 
all the you know 50s, 60s, and 70s. They're here and there, but the point is they're intermixed with all these other uh, aliens. And the thing is, is that nobody really had a consistent idea. I don't think for what the aliens would look like. You look at science fiction you know, from the 1950s right, and 60s. Right, it's all over the map. It's all Just over like the place. Just like the... Oh, the, uh, no, they're, they're probably giant slime monsters, you know, yeah. from Venus. Or, yeah. you know, they're giant spiders from Jupiter. Or what. Yeah. It's all... It's, it's everywhere. The funny thing is, even after that cultural precedent, people were still seeing stuff all over the map. Uh, you mean Before after, communion. Uh, before communion, yeah. 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 But then communion comes along, and... I think that a number of things happened, and you know, this is this is not to be derogatory to any researchers or anything. I understand, but some people decided that you know they wanted to look at these particular cases, or that you know maybe subtly the idea was, hey, if we present a more consistent group of facts then it'll look you know it, it'll make more sense to people on the outside right who think this is all a joke because well, they started self-selecting their and I aliens that, too I understand that logic yeah you know so it really starts to get locked in after communion yeah. and you get all these other researchers who start jumping in and adding more information and suddenly you know we just have this massive onslaught of, of encounters with graves right and, of course, then there's some things that happen retroactively. I mean, Roswell, you know, ask, ask anybody now what they think the aliens from Roswell looked like. Yeah. You know, what pops right into their consciousness, the little greys. What did they describe them as in, or did they, in Roswell incident? I don't remember. Was there a description, or that was... Was that with the Schmidt and Randall book that, that came out after yeah, communion? Yeah, that's, that's after it. Yeah. And then, of course, we had you know the alien autopsy, which yeah. purportedly was from a creature from Roswell. Yeah. So, you know, we get all these things that add into that, again, the collective consciousness. And you have this idea now locked into people's consciousness. So it may be a situation where they're encountering as you said, something exterior that is going to be perceived by them in the form that makes the most sense. Right. Aliens probably don't make a lot of sense in, in, in some people's minds, yeah. but if, if they're going to make any kind of, you know, if they're going to fit it into that right. paradigm anyway, then it has to be something they're familiar with, and everybody's familiar with the alien greys. Yeah, at this point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, God says you ride through Roswell and they're, right. you know... Or if you have that kind of... Yeah. Or if you have an experience and you don't know about it, which is kind of hard to believe, what are they going to show you the first time you go to an investigator? Or what are you going to exactly. see the first time you crack a book trying to see what you... Exactly. Figure out what you saw? Your mind's going to... That's it. Yeah. Exactly. And you don't even realize... I don't... I think, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't want to presume, but... When your mind's grasping at something to keep it from going nuts, I think it'll grasp it. Even if it's something frightening or makes no sense at all or whatever, at least it's something. Well, the human mind doesn't like blank spots. Right. So if there's something in there that doesn't fit your current perception, yeah. it's going to fill that blank spot in as quickly as it can right, with exactly. whatever is presented. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this type of phenomena, we have cultural ideas present already 
for what that is. Right. You know the. We got a mold. Right, we do. So you know the big hairy monster in the in the woods, uh, Sasquatch. We were given that with, uh, you know, the Patterson Gimlin film in '67. So people didn't describe it that way before then. Well, they did, but there's but there's some variations again because you yeah. go you go back to tribal lore, uh, you know, with and tribes we will get all back to when I, before I interrupted you about. Oh, sure. Physical as opposed to paranormal. <laughs> yeah, no so. worries. But, uh, you know, again, yeah, it's a little more consistent because you have different uh, cultures around the world describing something that all sounds the same. That's, you know, meaning maybe that's a poor example. But the point I'm trying to make is that somewhere along the way, we get these cultural ideas and even cross-cultural ideas about what a particular phenomena looks like when it manifests. So yeah. that unknown creature that's out there in the wild, you know, we have this general idea that that's what it's going to look. It's going to be humanoid, you know, bipedal, yeah. shaggy hair, uh, a, a ghost. You know, we have if if you say, "What do you think a ghost is going to look like?" To most people, they may describe the physical. Um, you know, features differently, but there'll be some things that'll be very consistent. They'll think that it's going to, oh, it's going to be this wispy, transparent form that floats, right? Mm -hmm, right. I mean, that's the common, call. you say yeah. ghost, that's what people think Yeah, of. that's so, what's on Scooby-Doo, I mean, come on. Right. So, <laughs> you know, when we think about aliens from another world, that was not a widespread idea, I don't think, until... You know the science fiction of the the twenties and thirties, right? And people started coming around to this, and and for a long time it was all over the map, as you say. And you know there was all this speculation. I mean, we we didn't really have a lot of details on what the surface of Neptune might be like, or mm -hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> you know what what was under the clouds of Venus, and so it it lent way to a lot of speculation. Oh, right. there are these, you know. Fill in the blank, you know mm -hmm. these kind of creatures, and yeah. it's crazy if you look at like the pulps of the nineteen twenties and thirties, and you see all these different, you know, yeah, uh, slime spiders from Venus, and you know, all this yeah. crazy stuff. Yeah. And I think that consistently carried through into the forties and, and of course the fifties with all the science fiction movies. And yeah, uh, again, as we're talking about tonight, suddenly, boom, it gets coalesced and, and solidified into the greys in the 80s. Yeah. Um, who was a co-author of uh, Chris Aubeck of uh, um, Wonders in the Sky. Mm -hmm. um, when I interviewed him, he said, did you, did you re I think he mentioned this on Coast to Coast too, and then I had him on, but he said, I went back and researched the source of the term flying saucer. Mm-hmm. He said it was being used in the teens and 20s right. to refer to clay targets for skeet shooting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and people consist, and even in the army, they called them flying saucers yeah. for practice. That's great. So it's the, the term had been around before Kenneth Arnold, uh, before 1947. It was just right. being used in a completely different context. Yeah. <laughs> so back to the, um, since I interrupted you about 20 minutes ago, about um, Bigfoot being a physical creature with paranormal attributes rather than a purely physical or purely paranormal. Right. 
what brought you to that? Uh, wow. At least your present <laughs> hypothesis, which I know it's your, you knowing you, it's probably open to yeah, change sure. if if new sure. information comes in. Probably my, probably the strongest component uh, to that for me is the information I've gathered from Native American people. And um, I have to sort of talk around this for a moment so it makes sense to you. Okay. One of the things, you know, I, I've studied a lot of shamanic traditions over the years. And, in fact, I, I started studying those traditions really early on when I started delving into you know, pursuing supernatural topics. So it's always went hand-in-hand hand with me. And I... I think that it's given me a different perspective because a lot of these tribal cultures, they don't deny or look down on the idea of the existence of all this phenomena. It's, you know, they just sort of shrug their shoulders. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's it's like it's, the trees yeah. and the water and That's the air correct. and whatever. It's just right. part of life. And so, you know, as I grew older and the more I traveled around the world and, and had a chance to interact with different indigenous cultures... I found a lot of consistencies with certain things that mm. sort of uh, helped co-create ideas for me, if you will. And, you know, one of the things that I always found fascinating, you know, Keel always talked about these window zones. And that, that's something that just has always intrigued me. And I've been to a lot of those places around the planet. One of the things I found from talking to the tribal cultures that live close to those things, those areas, almost always they would have these legends about another race that lived on this planet mm. with their ancestors, and they were different. Now, they described them in different ways. But then, you know, at some point there is a conflict or a war or something happens that this other race decides to leave. And when they leave... They do so through a shimmering doorway or a hole in the mountain or, you know, a, a, a something opens in the sky. or something. So it's a portal. Yeah. You know, they're, this, they're describing a freaking portal. Yeah. And, you know, this is, to me, something that I think science is going to eventually prove because science, quantum science is already talking about the existence of other dimensions now. You know, and, and years ago came out with a statement that I quote in some of my lectures, but essentially they're saying, you know, we, we know that there are, I think the number's up to 12 or something now. We know there are 12 other dimensions of existence. We don't know how to get there, but we know they're there. Well, you know, just because we can't get there doesn't mean that something there can't get here. <laughs> now, to bring that back around to Sasquatch, <laughs> you know, I find that a lot of tribal groups that have stories about these creatures they say that that they are physical creatures and they'll also say that they're spiritual creatures mm. and that they are a quote they're another race I, i've heard that so many times and that they can come and go as they want right now the tribal people will leave them alone but what intrigues me is there are cases you know in the first woodnots i did a whole uh, piece on Sasquatch sightings on the Navajo reservation and mm -hmm. some of those encounters are just amazing. There are accounts where they follow a, a series of tracks in the snow on a ridge line, no trees, no nothing around, and the tracks just suddenly stop. 
You know, so, I mean, this thing either got picked up by a spaceship or, yeah. you know, it possibly went through some kind of a portal or something. Or, you know, maybe it has some kind of a cloaking mechanism. And I know that sounds crazy for some people, but the comparison is, uh, you know, what do you think it would have been like for the first person who saw a chameleon? Yeah. You know, they're seeing this creature there one moment, and the next moment, whoa, it, it's all I'm seeing now is the tree. And this thing has somehow blended into the tree. So, you know... I, and I, it doesn't do it where it goes, I'm going to do this thing. It's just a natural... Right. It doesn't say, con- watch this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's as... It's as it's it's for that creature, whatever. You, it's a natural thing where they don't even think about. Yeah, I'm going to do this thing. It's just like I want to go over there. Exactly. And it just exactly does it. It naturally will transition to that over there, whatever yeah. that over there might be. So you know, this this may simply be some kind of a, a biological ability that we just don't understand. I see. That would explain some of the more supernatural aspects to Sasquatch sightings. And, and and it's sad, too, because a lot of, oh, I don't even know what to call them. I guess, you know, more traditional cryptozoologists, uh, they're really stuck in this idea that, no, we can only talk about it being an, an, an animal that, you know, nobody Yeah, has, because you know, if you start bringing that paraphysical thing in, people are going to think oh, we're nuts. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> it, it drives some of them crazy. But... Yeah, I, I wish. How are we going to get any kind of right <laughs> respect any, from, yeah, yeah. from anybody serious if we start talking about this crap? Exactly. Let's not worry about solving the problem. Let's worry about how how much respect we can get. Yeah, well, you know what what <laughs> the image is going to look like you know, when, I'm, when I'm talking about this. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that you've have you had this discussion with people that are complete physicalists about it and. I have, you know, and is that my silly joke? Is that really what's kind of? Do you think that's what's going on with well, that I attitude? Well, I think it is with some people. I, you know, I and I know a lot of people in the cryptozoology field, and I, I know Lauren find, Coleman is very much a physical Bigfoot person, right? But and, I don't think he has a he, he doesn't. That's a true thing. He doesn't have an ego problem with it, right? And, and I do find that more and more. It, it, this is my impression. The last. Oh, I, I don't know, maybe five years or more, maybe ten years or more. It seems that there's slowly, uh, these people are opening up more and more to the the possibilities and the potentials. And I, right. I have a lot of colleagues who are only cryptozoologists. That's the only thing they do. And, you know, I can talk to them about this stuff. And I'll say, well, you know, I think it's a physical animal, but that's pretty interesting you know and really? that's, yeah. they're, not, and then, they're, they're not emotionally threatened by it no they're not and, and my, my chameleon argument has actually made <laughs> I think made some people you know really stop and think well huh you know <laughs> that is a great argument maybe um, you're, almost, you're kind of winning me over here <laughs> yeah well you know if you think about it we discover new animals all the time right particularly you know look at some of the creatures that have been found in the depths of the ocean yeah I was just thinking of the um, uh, uh, what's the the What's that? The, that shrimp that, right? And you the mantis know, shrimp. Yeah, and we're finding all these uh, bioluminescent creatures right. that live, you know, where there's no light, and it's right. just, it's amazing. And really, if you think about that, maybe not such outrageous terms, but you know, here on the surface, uh, there's there's certainly that potential there for 
animals that can just do things biologically that we don't quite understand how that works yet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the past we they got... They can change their... I'm just thinking of my talk. I've, I've, they can change their information signature at will without thinking about it. Yeah, you know, who knows? <laughs> so, I, I mean, I don't know. And some, you know, some of it sounds crazy, but maybe... You know, maybe they have a way to do something like you were saying. You know, I'm I'm here. I want to be over there. You know, it's all to us. That's almost like oh, that's teleporting, like in you know, yeah, uh, sci-fi them, movies. To or them, it's they but can maybe, see through that entire spectrum, and it's just yeah, it could be natural yeah. for them to move to that other part yeah, of that spectrum. Exactly. And when you say dimensions, it's like but people think of that, and they think of it in a way. It's like well, you go from this dimension to that dimension, right? And to me, that doesn't make sense. What makes sense to me is it's coexistent yes exactly with us we just can't see it exactly whatever that you know fifth sixth seventh eighth ninth tenth it's coexistent with us but maybe bigfoot can see four of them or something or eight well and see that and exists in those eight or whatever and that's another one of those things i I think you were around earlier when when the gen came up Mm -hmm. you know and really here's something else yet again that we go back to the ancient lore and we look at how these things were described and how could we interpret that in modern terms with our our current understanding of science so the jinn go back to the early you know to the formation of islam and in that belief system three races were created mm-hmm. angels mm-hmm. jinn and man mm-hmm. when Allah commanded the other two races to bow down to the superiority of man, the jinn refused. Now their punishment was they were banished. But this becomes very curious because they're not like banished to Pluto or something. They're they're banished but they're still here. Mm. And all of these They're banished from our physicality. That's correct. Mm. So uh, you know, all of these texts uh, go to this idea that the jinn are are here we just don't necessarily have complete consciousness of them and they're all still the pissed time. off about being banished oh they are and <laughs> so you know so when when you go and and look at their traditions and I, I've dug into a lot of this stuff uh you know the jinn can live in an abandoned house or they can live you know in a just a random spot in the desert or a rock could house a gin mm-hmm. you know all these different things yeah and this sort of brings us almost full circle curiously enough to our the beginning of this with the it's idea of collective thing. consciousness oh, okay. because one of the tenets of islam is that uh, you must believe anything that's written in the quran yeah well the quran says that jinn exists how many Muslims do we have on the planet right now? I don't know how many million. hundred million? And every one of them has to believe in the existence of the jinn. <laughs> now, what is that collective consciousness doing? That is opening a huge goddamn door. <laughs> <laughs> You're opening the door just by believing in it. This That's is something right. I was going to bring up in the talk that Whitley Strieber said that he'd heard from some military person. I guess he'd either mentioned it in... I could never find where the reference was. 
But it sounds silly. But he said what was going on in the 50s, as he heard it, was that the military was concerned that aliens could get to us if we believed in them. Right. And it sounds like Peter Pan. Yeah. But it's right along the same lines of just what you were saying. Exactly. It's like, you know, deny and um, obfuscate and don't talk about it because if you do, <laughs> the doors open up and those things can jump through. That's right. See, you know, when I hear about disclosure, I think that's the goddamn disclosure. <laughs> there it is. Not, not you know, whatever the hell it is people think, aliens right. here in, in Roswell and all that. That has nothing to do with it. I think yeah. it has to do with um, a lot of what we were just, we've been talking about here. Oh, yeah. Like mindset, um, collective mindset, things like that. And, you know, if enough of a belief is engendered, then that becomes a reality. Exactly. At least, you know, and it, it's it's uh, fits in with a lot of, you know, philosophy and ideas that you make your own reality by thinking about it and how you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't mean it's not real just because you're just like, oh, well, that's your illusion. It's like, no, it's you have created that reality and it has some physicality now, at least where we are. Oh, sure. Because, you know, it can be uh, created to the extent where it has interactive ability you know whether you believe in it or not mm. it, if you know if 10 people around you believe in it you and, and you don't have a that, choice in in a sense i think yeah um yeah look at the election you know because we're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see my joke i make a joke that, but there is a there is a it. kernel of God damn it in there. Well, me. that's that's full circle, too, because, you know, I, I remember sitting and, and looking at the choices that the election came down to in November. And I said, you know what? We're living the end of Ghostbusters. We're being told to choose the form of the destructor. <laughs> <laughs> we had two choices. Yeah. <laughs> Neither one was a win. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> uh, this this whole idea just one's though, more obviously uh, painful than the other right. the other well, one was just sneakily painful this whole idea you know of tulpas we go back to Alexandra David now and I know you're familiar with her mm -hmm. her story and which is amazing this, even beyond all this oh yeah it is and you know here is a entity that was created in the full physical form and became interactive yeah yeah, but yeah, yeah. but took on his own consciousness to a degree because he became you know kind of creepy mm -hmm. and and she became frightened of him because he was taking his own energy and taking his his own direction. So uh, you know if you apply that to some of these other concepts and ideas yeah. we're talking about, I mean, what if the collective consciousness through social media has created a Slenderman tulpa? Yeah. Oh, that's that's something that's awful damn creepy that we need to be concerned about. And how do you slam that door? Right. And when it's something that's done through the collective consciousness, it's very hard to do because yeah. you're not going it, to... You can get all those people lined up initially with the negative idea, but then right. to dispel that, it's a hell of a lot harder. Yeah. That's that's quite a challenge. And yeah. then, then when we talk about things like the gin... You know, this gets very sinister because there are actually groups that actively work to direct the djinn mm. to 
harass their enemies. You know, do this. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, yeah, this is what the you were mentioning the Golden Dawn and some of the other um, groups that they probably still try to do it. But that that's that was part of their modus operandi was to. Oh sure, they create, they weren't. You know, yeah, they weren't dealing with gym, but they were. Dealing, no, no, they, they uh, deal with it in a Western context. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Theosophical Society, of course, looked at a lot of uh, David Nail's material. You know, when she was writing about what mm. she discovered in Tibet, and of course, they took up on this idea and interpreted it as thought forms, which uh, it is really the closest Western word we have for tulpa. And yeah, manifested thought form. Yeah, manifested thought thought form. So uh, the difference being that you know tulpa, which is a Tibetan word, literally means that it it's an entity that is created first in a person's consciousness and goes through all the stages to full physical form. So, mm-hmm. And that in itself is kind of interesting too, because really, if you, you mean look at the bardo stages to become a physical, well, if you look at the if you look at the progression, the way you roughly interpret uh, Alexandra's story, you know, she started meditating on this idea, mm-hmm. and she wanted she was in Tibet when she was doing this experiment and wanted something non-Tibetan so that there were no external influences in in her you know environment that she could misinterpret or anything yeah i read so, this book in the early 90s so it's right. reminding me of so uh, what she did was she she Books. thought of you know basically like a friar t- type of character mm-hmm. you know this short jolly mm-hmm. uh european monk mm-hmm. and she started holding that in her consciousness and, and eventually she started to um feel and, and see it manifest. So we're kind of talking about a ghost there, aren't we? You know, this... this I can't remember. Could others see it? Was the guy she was traveling with see it? Well, she once it manifested a full physical form, everyone in the camp was seeing it. Okay. Yeah. So other people were seeing it, yeah. And and then, of course, you know, so it, it goes from her consciousness to sort of a ghostly form to, you know, to being a solid... Something autonomous, basically. Something walking around. Mm-hmm. And then it took on its own uh, direction and became a bit sinister. And that's that's when it frightened her. So, you know, in her case, she was able to go back to the llamas and say, uh, this, you know... This what, is going what, way too far. What did I do here? And, mm-hmm. and they, you know, conveniently... Which is my experience with the Tibetans, too. You know, they, they don't give all the information up front. You know, so, you know, you have to know what questions to ask. So she yeah. went back and she said, well, you know, this is... He seems to be. Native acting, Americans are like that you know. too. Oh yes. So you know he he seems to be doing this and that. Oh yes. Well you know he will take on his <laughs> the topo will take on his own consciousness. It's like well you know what do I do? So they gave her a process to dispel it because it was early enough. But uh, this is again something very different than a entity that's created through the collective consciousness because mm-hmm. you, you're not going to get. You know, right, There's, you don't have the you don't have the control the over it that you do if it's just one concentrated That's person. Right. That's right. That has that it is grown from your consciousness rather than because mm-hmm. it's come out through that door. So maybe you can shove it back through that door somehow. If you're lucky, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were on Alexander David Neal. Oh yeah. So to finish answering yeah, that question, it, it came around to you know she she was bringing that stuff back to uh, Europe. And 
writing books. And this woman, I, I can't believe no one's made a, a film mm -hmm. about this woman. You know, if you yeah. read her life story, I mean, she was freaking amazing. Yeah. And this is the period when Tibet was the forbidden kingdom. Outsiders weren't allowed in there. Yeah. What was this, 20, teens, 20s? Let alone a woman. Yeah. yeah, the early 1900s. Yeah. And, you know, she was she was doing things, you know, she's sneaking in. She snuck yeah. in, dressed as a man at one point. And she became very close to all these high-ranked lamas, and they started teaching her stuff. Yeah, probably because yeah. just of her chutzpah, they went, holy yeah, crap, I can't believe you made it all the way in here. Probably okay. so. Uh, so, you know... You've got like the Theosophical Society picking up on her ideas. Uh, the Golden Dawn, I'm sure, you know, they were influenced by the same thing. The Nazis, maybe. Uh, yeah, the Theosophical Society. Yeah, the Nazis sent expeditions to Tibet later on mm -hmm. in the 30s. But uh, Besant and uh, Ledbetter, you know, they did a book about. Thought forms, and from that there, one I haven't seen. Yeah, so from there we sort of go into this period with the Golden Dawn. We've got all these classic characters, you know, like Crowley and McGregor Mathers and uh, the Unfortunate mm -hmm. and uh, Yeats. There's a wide, wide range of people involved with Golden right, Dawn, right. and a lot of egos involved. Of course, none of them could get along very, <laughs> very well. So. You know, these people... Which is funny, because it, I thought the point of the Golden Dawn was to find your true thing, and then the ego would not be a problem after that, because you had your true thing. And, indeed it was. So, But again, <laughs> but again you've got, uh, you know, this whole group of people who are delving into these magical practices can't get along and start trying to utilize things that they've picked up to, you know cause each other problems and this idea of thought forms comes along yeah. uh, where you know you can essentially create in your consciousness a you know small little shadowy servant that'll go out and cause someone trouble yeah. temporarily and then ironically what else do we get around in this time period Crowley contacting an alien named Lyme yeah. uh, who you know what does that description sound like? You know, you seen the, ever seen the drawings of yes. it? Yes, those. <laughs> do you know what somebody pointed out? Regan Lee pointed this out to me. I think if you look at the drawing, it's got these tiny little eyes. But if it you does. look at the drawing, there's these shadowy things above its eyes yep. that, if you look at it in the right way, look like a giant gray alien head. Yep. Not just the because exactly. everybody's like, well, the eyes are so small, but he put no. these shadows in. That's correct. Over the eyes. That's correct. <laughs> Which I, I thought was fascinating when she mentioned mm -hmm. that. And of course that, you know, channeled the book of the law. Right. So Yeah, I think All some five. of the some of this uh the this uh shadow creation was also mentioned. Austin Osmond Spare talked about it oh, sure. quite a yeah, bit. And Kenneth Grant, Kenneth Grant in his couple did. of his books he yeah. he also traced some of the history of this. Yeah, well and he yeah, well, <laughs> Grant got way off, you know, into all this different. Uh, yeah, well, Spare did too. They well, they almost created their. I think they both created their own offshoot or complete other system. Oh, they did. Yeah, you know, um, apart from uh, uh, yeah. either AA or or um, uh, or 
Golden Dawn, or Golden Dawn, or or or, or Thalemic philosophy. So Mm -hmm. yeah, they 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 were they were offshoots that went even stranger places. Yeah, they sure did, and and they integrated in all this sort of Lovecraftian type of uh, imagery into a lot of their stuff, and and, yeah, got really strange. Yeah, huh. I don't have a next question, uh, Dave. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> I'm just trying thing? to. No, I don't know. I just I'm trying to you know get off this valley wick or whatever you want to call it of the co-creation. It's just it's obsessing me right now because I guess at some point you know I'm going to push it out of myself by having a book about it. Then I can then I can exercise it and don't have to worry about it anymore. So you think? Yeah, maybe. But the the you know and like I said we're just talking it's not really an interview the, the the thing is that I'm still trying to think of what the uh, what, what the challenges are going to be to you know because I'm waiting for somebody to ask me a question where I go I don't know because I don't know yet last time I, I gave the talk and somebody said well what if somebody in the Amazon rainforest sees a gray. Or has has an abduction experience or whatever. And I said, well, has that happened yet? Hundredth monkey. Yeah, exactly. And she said, well, for instance, if some if that does happen, or somebody from another, another culture or complete, you know, and has the same experience, how do you explain that if people are just making things up out of their head? I mean, or that's what she said. If people are just you know latching on to whatever in the culture, and I said, the only thing I can think of for that is. Who is doing the translation of that into our language, into our idiom, and into our thought? Right. What are they? What are they jumping over, or extrapolating, or saying? Well, they really mean this. Right. You're not from that culture. You don't know exactly what they're saying. The closest we could have to it is something came in the bedroom and picked me up and took me outside and took me to a ship and it had a big head and, you know. That may not be what they're saying at all. It may be like what they're saying, but not what they're saying. Right. And and this sort of harkens back to what, you know, a conversation we were having earlier today. Where does that influence come in? I, I mean, we don't know. Unless we're there, we don't know what the initial interviewer Exactly. Said. You know, they. I mean, they. <laughs> for all we know, they're meeting this native in the Amazon and then, you know, trying to understand and, and their response is drawing a gray alien head and saying, is this what you saw? Yeah. You know, we, we just don't know. Unless and, they and, ask them to draw it. Right. And then, again, too, you know, there's this, this hundredth monkey idea or this uh, group mind, this group consciousness. Right, that, right. They could be pulling out of the person just to make them happier because they think that's they what they're talking about or whatever. They could. I had a guy on my show, and he talked about... Um, and there's another possibility. Go ahead. The other possibility is that it is the exterior consciousness, be it alien or interdimensional or whatever it is, transmitting a consistent idea Mm. intentionally. Right. And this sort of goes back to... I hate to give it that much power, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah, but it's it's not necessarily a a lot of power. It's just that it's situational... It's taking situational advantage. You know, for instance... I, I do a lot of stuff in <clears throat> the ghost hunting segment of this whole supernatural world, right? 
And there are a lot of people in that field who are convinced that demons are literally running amok on the planet. And, you know, it frightens a lot of people. If you go into a home and someone thinks they're experiencing something negative and, you know, the, the idea somewhere in their consciousness that it could be demonic, because the odds are they have a Christian influence somewhere along the way. Yeah. Whether they were raised Christian or, or you know, Judeo-Christian yeah. or, or, or something else or, or whether... You know, I've seen people who, you know, are, are staunch, quote, atheists and get into these situations and the fear kicks in, you know. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, you know, it's a, it's a demon. Yeah, which we were talking about earlier was like we've got to make it into something that makes sense to us. Right, something that fits a paradigm that we at least is somewhere in our consciousness, right? Right. But, you know, here we go... Uh, Two, with this concept that we have, as investigators, we have to go in and accept that, okay, I I don't know exactly what this is. And... Is that what you do? I I do. And, you know, I don't don't walk in and say it's a demon or say that it's not a demon or anything else. I do emphasize to people, I say, look, you know, I always tell people, if, if... if a part of a human's consciousness survives after death and decides to stay for whatever reason, I said, if the person was an asshole in life, they probably are in death. And I said, you know. It's going to be asshole energy. Yeah. I, if, well, I mean, Get let's think about it. Asshole let's think about it. You know, if, if, if a guy is a real creep and, and he passes away and he's trapped or decides to stay or part of his consciousness is there replaying things or whatever what's he going to do he's going to take every advantage he can and if he thinks that he can scare the hell out of somebody by growling and saying that he's a demon you can rest assured he's going to do that mm-hmm. so you know my point with that is that we have to acknowledge that if there's an exterior consciousness that is communicating somehow then it's going to be Adaptable to a certain degree, and it's going to try to translate its itself to whatever receptors you have over. Right, right. So if they're it, a little gray alien, it seeks the it seeks uh, it's lo- it seeks the easiest path. Sure, yeah. So if they're little gray aliens, then you know that's what it's going to manifest. If it's you know Lucifer himself, then that's probably what it's going to be. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna. Uh, I don't think that necessarily empowers it, though. I think you're looking at it, and you're giving it a lot of credit. But I, I think it's a very simple credit. I, I think it's. I don't think it takes much logic to say, okay, well, that's a consciousness. Then it's going to. It's going to utilize the path of least resistance. Right. How much experience do you have where people force something like that into a belief system consciously to banish or change or whatever? Does that work if you have the presence of mind to do it? Meaning, can you change the reality of something paranormal that's going on by force of will and uh, uh, cause it to become that, to manifest in that way? Even if you say, look, I don't like the demon, I like Mickey Mouse. So it'll manifest as Mickey Mouse if you concentrate. Have oh, you I come see. across anything like that or, e- or even anything in that direction? Well, I, I think if you're talking about things in that direction, we get into 
Like they, when he says, stay puff marshmallow man in the marshmallow. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I think what we get into, I think how that would manifest most often in the whole ghost hunting aspect of things is when we get into areas of uh, oppression, um, negative entities that get cleansed or, ex- you know, an exorcism done and, and they get uh, evicted from the house. I, I think that, you know, I've seen situations where the people felt like something was in their home and they really wanted it out of there and I believe added to the idea that it was something evil that needed to be purged mm-hmm. from the home. So mm-hmm. they call in, depending on what their faith is, you know, a priest or right. a rabbi or whatever, right. to, in order to get rid of that. So that that would be how I would see that translate. You know, translating it from saying, okay, it's manifesting as a demon, I want to change it to Mickey Mouse, I, I've never seen anything that extreme. Okay. I mean, it's an interesting concept. Right, right. But the problem is, is that I was you've got being, emotional receptors that you right, have to right. get beyond. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. Really, in these situations, that's what's reacting for people. Right. It's, it's the fight or flight, mm-hmm. you know, kicks in and all yeah, the emotional reactions. Yeah, you can't think straight when all that emotional, no, whatever. you can't. And and it's it's a great idea, and you could laugh it off maybe with the, the rare person, but you couldn't get them to shift their, their deeper consciousness. Uh, yeah, you know. because they, they need help at that point. They don't need somebody coming in and saying, could That's you just right. imagine it as Mickey Mouse? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It just, it, uh, the uh, woman we were talking to uh, at uh, dinner there, what I was trying to get her to say was, um, I've got this idea is if you can look at something dispassionately enough the less hold it will have over you because of the emotional hold it might have if you weren't dispassionate. Do you agree with that? If you know what I'm saying. Like you have something horrible happening in your uh, some some supposedly paranormal thing happening personally to you. And you just decide, look, you know what? I'm going to try and step outside this and look at it as an observer. Mm-hmm. Is this going to change the, you know, is this going to change, I guess it couldn't help but change the nature of what's happening to you. And is that even possible? Have you heard of anybody that's been able to do that? I think it's possible, but I, I think that unfortunately the only way that works is if you have an, an additional external influence that comes in that triggers a change in the emotional response. So, uh, Because I, 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 think it's, I think it's very hard to... In a situation where a person is in a state of fear about yeah. dynamics that are unfolding yeah. in their life, yeah. to suddenly flip a switch somewhere exactly. and say, okay, well, I'm going to view this differently. I'm not saying it, it certainly is I guess possible. what I was just thinking is, what if you're in the middle of a divorce? Why don't you step back at this and look dispassionately? You can't. Right. You almost yeah. can't. Yeah, there's there's too many. You, know, it, you wouldn't it, be getting divorced if you could do that. Right, and it affects too many you know, parts of your yeah. of your life. Now, I'll give you a good example that sort of plays in with what you're talking about, though, in terms of um, actually where I acted as an additional external influence, and it, it was the, just the way it happened that this was, oh gosh, probably 10 years ago or more, I, I got 
uh, I was contacted by this woman. She was a single mother. She had kids. She was living in this home that she was experiencing some strange activity. And she had a local paranormal team come in and do an investigation. They did so. And they basically scared the hell out of her. They told, you know, they came in and did a half-ass investigation. Is I, I know is what happened. And they they told her, oh, we, you know, you've got a portal in here. There's demons in your house. And they left this poor woman because all they wanted was to go back and write up a, a nice little report for their website yeah. and talk about the demon case that they just investigated. Yeah, yeah. And they leave this woman just helpless and, and in a highly emotional state, now terrified about what she's going to do for her kids. Now, you know, I, I'll be the first one to tell you that I, I'm not a skeptic, but I, I'm also a serious investigator when it comes to these types of things. So, right. you know, when I found out about the state that this woman was in, I said, okay, well, you know, I'll let me come over and, and talk to you and get the details. So, you know, I went and I had this conversation with this woman. She told me all these crazy things this team had told her and mm. some of the manifestations, you know. So the, the demons are scratching in the walls and, you know, there's all these. She reels off a, a handful of things. And the, the two big things that were really getting to her, uh, three big things. One, her, her children were acting a little bit strange. Uh, two, this scratching in the walls that she was now convinced was demonic and the manifestation of the number 666 on the wall in one of her kids bedrooms yeah so you know <laughs> taking logical steps uh, you know you ask all the you ask all the right questions which this team had not done you know you ask if these kids are they on any medication is anybody now you know all, all the whole litany of things and um it it turned out, uh, I made her get uh, someone over to inspect the house. And it turned out that this, this was an old house with plaster walls. And she had, uh, I forget which it was, rats or mice or something in the walls. And they were, you know, gnawing into this plaster. And it, it, was, it was, making it was amplifying the sound because of their scratching and the pieces of plaster falling and everything. So, boom, there's no demons crawling around on your walls. The 666 thing, she bought this house really cheap. Whoever sold it whitewashed the walls. The room that her kid was in, the wall's been whitewashed. Obviously, it had been a child's room before because I'm standing there, I'm looking around, and, and Greg, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I walked in this room, and I said, well, that looks like 666 on the wall, you know? Mm -hmm. like it's, and it looks like it's coming through the paint. Yeah. So I start looking around at other parts of the wall, you know, and I'm seeing, well, here's this big black smudge under the paint. And I realize pretty quickly that some kid had been in this room before and colored all over the walls with crayons. Yeah. And there was this whole area where this kid had done this loop-de-loop, yeah. a whole line of it down the wall. And it just so happened that three of them, that came three out. Of them were really popping out there in the center. Yeah. And... and you know, when I got soap and water and stripped some of the paint off, I said, I'm going to ruin this wall, but it needs to be repainted anyway. Yeah. At the relief that manifested on this woman's face. Yeah. Because she was absolutely convinced by the first set of dynamics that were presented to her. Right. You've got demons. Mm-hmm. 
And it, it caused her fear reaction to kick in mm-hmm. and her helplessness and, uh, you know, yeah. everything's lost. So, you know, what am I going to do? But the only way to transform that for her, I think, at that time, or, or one of the ways, was to say, no, look. <laughs> you know, and for some people, I'll be honest with you, that wouldn't work because some people would be right so invested, invested in, in buying into the idea that, you know, I, you know, I've got a portal to hell, you know. Well, at that point, you can't help them. No, you can't. You can't. Because they don't want any help. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you tell them to move out and let their mother-in-law live there, I guess, or something. You know? <laughs> but, you know, the thing is, is that uh, for this woman, it, it, it flipped the switch. And I, yeah. could, I could see it on her face when this happened. And that, that one simple thing. Because she was, even, even after the inspector came and, and verified, well, you know, you've got mice or rats in the wall. She, she wasn't quite, yeah. so I could tell she wasn't quite sold. It's like, well, you know. Yeah, but what about this but stuff what about appearing this? on the wall? Right, what about this? But that was the one thing for her for some reason, and that's probably some deep-seated emotional, you know, everybody has those. There's probably something about 666 in her consciousness that yeah. she was really fixated on. Yeah. And once that was taken away, that was like, you know, that was the, the slate is white clean, so she's allowed herself to say, oh, yeah, okay, I, I can breathe and I, I don't have to worry about, you know, well, usually it takes a preponderance of evidence to convince anybody of anything. Right. Sure. You know, so two or three or four or whatever, you know, you start to, you know, just one, you're just kind of like, yeah, well, but what about this? But what about and this just, and this? Yeah. So it, yeah. it helps. You know, I got really nervous when you were first saying about that because I used to live in a house in Beverly Glen near UCLA uh, for a few years. Um and there was scratching in the walls. <laughs> and right. I heard, and I could hear, <laughs> like this little animal in the walls. I would hear the scratching, and I'd go pound on the wall where the scratching was, and yeah. I would hear this, like, very strange, small animal noise, and it would scrabble up the wall and go somewhere else and scratch over there. And if I put my hand on the wall, I could physically feel it on the other side, scratching. Wow. And... I always figured it was probably rats or sort of squirrels or something that mm-hmm. had gotten in the walls, and it probably was. Right. Um, the other weird thing about that house is I went out to the kitchen one time. Um, I was in the house by myself. It was daylight. I was in the house by myself, and I walked in the kitchen. There was a sink, and on each side of the sink were three drawers with, you know, whatever I had in the drawers. Mm-hmm. I walked in the kitchen one time, and the drawers were open in a stair-step pattern. Oh, wow. And I wasn't scared. I was kind right. of fascinated. Right. As I walked in, I was like, is there somebody here messing with me? It's almost something like a kid would do, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I think the back door was open, but I had been in the kitchen not a few minutes before. So I figured somebody had sneaked in, done that, and run out. But then I talked to the guy, the caretaker that took care of the property, and he said, no, other people had shit like that happen. <laughs> but that's the only thing that happened to me was those drawers. The scratching I put down to an animal. It was right. disconcerting, but right. I thought it was an animal. But, yeah, he said that the, the, those that other stuff had happened in that house. Mm-hmm. And other houses that he managed up and down that street. 
You said there was one where pennies kept appearing everywhere, which is a common thing, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's in a port. Yeah. Yeah. He would clean out the entire place and get it ready for the next tenant, and then he'd go back and there'd be a penny in the middle of each drawer when he opened it. Yeah. Every drawer in the house. Wow. <laughs> While he was there. Yeah. And he found out that the woman that lived there, he said the woman that lived there was a miser. She used to live under the stairs, and she had when she died, they found bottles and uh, uh, jars of pennies everywhere. Wow. And her relatives came in, cleaned it all out, took all the pennies out, but then pennies kept appearing everywhere. Right. So that was his story about the house down That's the street. crazy. <laughs> yeah. So that was fascinating to me, but I never asked him to go down and see that house. But, yeah, I did have the stair-step drawers one time. So, yeah, I guess a few weird things have happened to me, but never like a big slap-in-the-face weird thing that I, that I really remember. Yeah, but what's big enough? I don't know. A slap in yeah, the face, I guess. Uh, well, <laughs> when that happens, you know, you're going to ask for something else. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a slap, but how about a punch? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's just... Uh, I, I keep saying I'm fascinated by this stuff, and then it's never happened to me. But very little tiny things have happened throughout the years. Just when I stopped doing my magazine, it seemed to ramp down quite a bit. Right, but the magazine was... That was opening sort a huge of door you for actively me. delving into. Yeah. You know. I also had my kachinas stuff. making scratching noises. Right. Did you hear about that? I think you told me about that before. Yeah. So I've got a lot of kachinas, and some of them do strange things. So. Really? What do they do? There's a number of them that move on their own. Oh. Uh, there's a drumming sound that comes from one on occasion. <laughs> All the <laughs> drumming sound. What, what, like what kind of a drumming sound? It sounds like a native drum, like just a quick, you know. Just like boom, 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 yeah. boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that in a low, like you're hearing a drum. Yeah. There's we, no way something that size could make that sound. No, there's yeah. not. There's not. We just we just had that. It has in, a little wind uh, up on it somewhere you can't see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a squirrel doing. <laughs> we just in. Oh, a week ago? No, two two weeks ago. Uh, I say we, uh, two other guys, uh, along with me, we went down to Panama City, Florida, and did a paranormal investigation in the Ripley's Museum down there, <laughs> which is you know very unusual. They don't usually let people investigate those places, but we were in there for two nights and we heard audible drums at one point. And it was really interesting, and, it, and one of the recorders caught it. What was interesting was it was down in the area where all the African artifacts were, and the next day when we were going into the daylight looking at some of the cases, there was one case that was sort of at an angle. The, the glass was at an angle, and we hadn't seen it on our quick walkthrough, but the next day going by this case, we realized there's a drum sitting in there. So... You know, and it was right over this area where we picked up the sound of this drum. So, some kind of residual energy or something attached mm-hmm. to the item. Why did they want you down there? Why did he want us down there? Why were you called in to look at it? Oh, because they were having a lot of strange uh, activity in the Ripley's, and with, uh, with visitors in there. Well, there was a few things that visitors had experienced, and the people who managed it were having... I would figure the people who managed it when it's yeah, quiet and... Exactly, yeah. exactly. So they were having a lot of strange things. They were seeing an apparition. They were hearing all these weird noises. 
and uh, they had a local team had investigated it. Uh, they found out about us from seeing things we'd done on our live channel on YouTube and asked us to come down and check it out. So, I mean, what a rare opportunity. It was, it was really cool, you know. And again, so many of those artifacts carry so much energy from wherever they came parts from. of the world, yeah. So it was it was pretty cool. We had a lot of we gathered a lot of stuff down there, and of course we took all of our high tech stuff, you know, in this case to see what we could come up with. And did you solve their problem, or they didn't? They didn't really want it solved. You know, a lot of these places they just wanted they confirmation. Want confirmation, and and sometimes you get a situation where, and we literally I, I've heard this a lot. Oh, I know I'm not crazy now. <laughs> you know, you, you caught a piece of evidence or you caught that on yeah, the recorder yeah. or, or you saw it too. And that is so comforting hmm. to a lot of people who are having these experiences because, as we were talking about earlier, a lot of people just can't find a way to fit this into their consciousness. It's become easier because anything yeah, because paranormal we've been inundated is part of that. pop culture. Yeah. You know, but um, but that's fairly recent. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people still have the old mindset that, well, you know, yeah, it's on TV, but, you know, it shouldn't be happening, in, <laughs> you yeah. know, in, in my house or my museum or, you know, wherever it is that I am. Right. So uh, a lot of these people, they simply want to know, okay, I don't know you. You just came down here and you've talked about exactly what I've been experiencing, so now I know I'm not. Mm-hmm. Crazy when you go down there, do you ask them what's going on, or do you tell them not to say anything? Uh, typically, with uh, it, it depends on the case. Ripley's is really big, so you know what we did there was ask about some of the uh, a couple of the key things they had experienced, and, mm-hmm. and what you know what the what they thought the quote hot spots were. You know where where are you getting the most activity, and they uh, told us that, which sort of gave us, you know, something to, to go on initially. But then we use we use our own inner direction too, with where to concentrate hmm. and what to look at the most. Hmm. And of course, this stuff is really cool now. I mean, when I started doing this originally, you know, I had a, a notepad <laughs> and a, you know, the next thing was like a. a Instamatic camera or something, yeah, you know, or, eventually or a tape recorder, a reel to reel recorder. The first yeah. thing I called EVPs with was a reel to reel recorder. <laughs> you know? And um, I'd love to have one of those things now, actually. Why a, a good working one? Because um, I love all the modern technology that you know I can utilize and go to these locations, but I also like to mix in very low-tech stuff or earlier stuff because it's... Oh, how can I explain why? You know, sort of... Because the instrument will sometimes determine what you get? Exactly. Sometimes. I think that's the case. And I think that you... Whatever it is you're interacting with, whether it's a consciousness or residual energy or whatever it is, uh, you test that energy in a different way when you use a variety of technology... You know, anything from something really simple, you know, I mean, a pair of dowsing rods all the way up to a high-tech SLS camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's really fascinating. Uh, 
And to me, the most compelling evidence are, is something that has multiple levels of manifestation that go anywhere from that technology to something that the human body picks up on. I mean, the human body is really our best investigation tool, mm-hmm. you know, for these things. So mm-hmm. a, a good example of what I mean by this is, do you know what an SLS camera is? It's no. A, it's a fairly new device. It, I won't even get into all the, the specifics of it, but it, the long and short is it maps anomalies that are trying to manifest in the shape of a, a, a consistent form. So what By happens By picking is, up on what? Variables in the uh, spectrum, in the light spectrum that it's detecting. Okay. So, Can you tune the spectrum? No. It, it's... Um, what does SLS stand for? Spectral something something <laughs> light sensor. Okay. You know. uh, so this guy Bill Chapel, who's an engineer and builds a lot of this equipment for uh, Ghost Adventures and, and you know other people, he came up with this thing. And what it does is it maps that energy and it shows it on a display screen has a digital has a stick figure, literally. So you know. In other words, if if a ghost, you know, it, it, the SLS cam will show you if you're standing there talking, and uh, it'll it'll map your body, and if something tries to manifest beside you in a human form, it'll show that as a stick figure standing beside you, where the rest of us are, are looking, and there's nothing there that we can see standing beside you. It's a pretty compelling device for a number of reasons, but one of the things this this really kind of I'm still trying to figure out what it what it looks at in a light I'll spectrum. I'll have to. I'll have to. That's a whole. Other okay, I can look it up. But yeah, you can look it up, folks. Just yeah. just just uh, Google it. With that, I don't. I don't want an hour long technical. You know. It's okay. So there was in, or there is in Ripley's uh, a table that <clears throat> is a round hand carved table. It's probably oh maybe. Two feet off the ground has African imagery around the outside of it. Top is flat. It's an executioner's table. <laughs> it's used for beheadings. Yeah. Was it used for beheadings? So, yeah. Yeah. So just to ju- verifiably used for beheadings. Yeah. So it got chops in it. It it has marks in it. It has a, a large area that is stained that you know gives you the impression that that's <laughs> yeah you know from. Uh, Bodily fluid, shall we say? Yes. But the the freakiest thing happened with this was that one of the guys was standing by the table running a, a, a spirit box, was this communication device. And I was aiming the SLS cam at this table, and simultaneously what happened was a figure appears to manifest in the SLS cam drops to its knees and its torso flops across the top of this table and then the head of the stick figure disappears yeah and and right as this is happening the guy running the ghost box says he has his hand down by the table and he says the temperature just dropped yeah you know like significantly over here my hand is freezing and 
you know, one of the other guys rushed over and said, yeah, it's, it's noticeably colder in this spot all of a sudden. So, you know, it's just really curious when you, all of this stuff is experimental anyway. You know, we're, we're yeah. delving into the unknown and we're using experimental technology. To do yeah. Because what else are we going to do it with, right? Exactly. So, you What's know, your model for what happened there with that table? I think that it was probably uh, residual energy that we were picking up on, you know, a recording, essentially. Because I, I think that certain objects or certain places can hold an impression of a traumatic event. Right. And when the conditions are right, that can be played back. And okay. I, I think if you look at a lot of classic ghost stories, you know, uh, particularly... It seemed much more obvious in Europe where you'll find ghosts that repeat the same actions uh, often on the anniversary, on particular anniversaries. And, you know, people will see the woman in white, you know, running down the hallway, turning to the left and going into the wall and mm-hmm. disappearing. And turns out that, well, where she went in, there used to be a doorway there. And, you know, she was murdered on you know this night or or whatever so i think that uh when those events happen that some kind of energy if you will from the human body of the human consciousness leaves that impression that can then continue to replay or can be triggered by the right dynamics the right elements or the right people and uh, that some people are able to witness that to some to varying degrees, mm-hmm. and you know now we have all this technology that's helping us capture those moments to some degree. How BS is it? Do you think of me to think that if nobody if the tree in the forest thing, if there was nobody there to observe it, would these things be happening? Like if you left, but the thing is, if you left a camera there and looked at it, you'd be observing it. You would be. That's right. So there's no way to there's no way to prove that argument either way, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. But uh, at the meaning, same time, how much of it is us kind of pushing the pushing it in our favor by being there? Well, I, do you consider it in your favor I, if you're actively looking for it? Yes, but a lot of people who experience this is certainly not in their favor. Yeah, because they go into denial that they saw it, or right. they, have, they wrestle with the idea that it was real and not their imagination so you know again we're looking at some kind of interaction that we don't understand possibly the dynamic is the very energy of the human body or or consciousness anyway right so it's it's providing the energy to have it happen or at least the observational energy right and it's something i talk about i'm going to talk about my thing it's like there's an observer effect and the science is now repeatedly uh, proved the observer effect in uh, the quant- the double slit experiment, a few other things. So if there's nothing, you know, there has to be... A, an observer affects the, the reality. Um, sure. And then, you know, when we get into the interactions of the human energy field, and really we have very little understanding of that at this point. But, again, I, I go back to what I was saying earlier ancient cultures talked about this stuff all the time right you know the idea of, of energetic healing or um, you know the simple experiment of 
staring at the back of somebody's head across the room. Right. You know, they're going, you know, most, most people will feel it and, and grow uneasy or turn and look or something. Mm-hmm. And, and that really is, that's a projection of, of thought and or energy. Right. So, or, yeah, or a, yeah, you can even the very simplest thing. It's a sender receiver, but I think there's more going on. Than I, that. I I think there is too, and you know the the uh, interesting thing is that we have to consider you know what the dynamics are when we take that same sort of experiment and put it in the context of a purportedly haunted area, you know. As you say, are we initiating the actual reaction in itself? And I, I think that to a certain degree, we absolutely are. One of my arguments for that is that I, I've done this stuff for a very long time. And in my experience, I've seen people who can go into the most you know, notoriously haunted house in the country and nothing happens. As much as they claim they want something to happen... They're dampening the energy somehow by hmm. their very nature, or and or their subconscious belief. But then there are other people who can go in and things just really ramp up. And combinations of people, because I, I've investigated with a lot of different people over the years, mm-hmm. and you know there are some people that the combination is just right, and it, it, it things go nuts. They, one of the uh, Dave Spinks is a good friend of mine. I investigate with him a lot, yeah. and we've had that experience where when we investigate together, we go into places and and the, everything is amped up. You know, things just happen. Yeah. Happen virtually from when we walk in the door. Huh. You know, so it's often the right combination of consciousnesses. Yeah, I wish I'd ask some of the. I had Barry Taff on my show one time, and I wasn't at my thought process where I am now. I wish I could ask. I could have him on again, I guess. Right. He's still yeah. around. He's okay. fine. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know who I'm talking about, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we've been talking for an hour 45. Do you want to talk any more, or you want to hit it? That's all on you, man. I'm fine at the moment, or we can stop, okay. or whatever. It's fine. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Until she, until she died, until 